following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So today we're going to be continuing our journey through Galatians. And one of the issues in today's passage is legalism. In Galatia, the Gentile Christians were being told, you are not really children of Abraham unless you obey all the law of Moses. And unless we think that this was just a problem in Paul's day, John Stott wrote, there are many such today. There are people whose religion is legalistic, who imagine that the way to God is by observance of certain rules. Perhaps we could think of the Roman Catholic who says, unless you accept the authority of the Pope, you are not kosher. Or the Baptist who says, unless you're baptized as an adult and immersed completely under the water, you are not kosher. Or the Pentecostal who says, unless you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, you are not kosher. Or the Anglican who says, unless you are a confessing member of the Anglican network in filling your country, you are not kosher. So Paul says, to all who desire to be under the law, listen to the law and remember, Abraham had two sons. Today's passage is Galatians 4:21 through 5:1. I'll go ahead and read that. You can follow along. Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born according to the impulse of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things are illustrations, for the women represent the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, who does not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate are many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one according to the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let us pray. Father, as we come into your presence today, I pray that you would speak through me, that the message that you've laid upon my heart would be clear to your children here. Father, we pray for this country of Thailand, that the hardened hearts would be softened, and they would hear the truth of the gospel message. I pray for all those that are traveling this summer, as we have many who are not here. And also pray for those that are visiting here, Father, that whether they visit for one Sunday 
or maybe they're searching for a new church, that they would find this service and this family of God a blessing. And Father, we just submit this service to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we attempt to interpret a passage like the one I just read, we must remember that for devout and scholarly Jews, the opponents of Paul in Galatia, and especially for the rabbis, Scripture had more than one meaning, and the literal meaning was often regarded as the least important. For the Jewish rabbis, a passage of Scripture had four possible meanings. Peshat, its simple or literal meaning. Ramaz, its suggested meaning. Derush, the meaning deduced by investigation. And Sad, the allegorical meaning. When a rabbi succeeded in penetrating into these four different meanings, he felt that he reached the joy of paradise. It therefore often happened that the rabbis would take a simple bit of historical narrative from the Old Testament and read into it inner meanings which often appeared to us fantastic, but which were very convincing to the people of their day. Paul was a rabbi trained in the school of Hillel, the founder of the rabbinical system whose hermeneutic rules were the basis of the Talmud. And this is what he is doing here. He takes a story involving Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac, found in Genesis chapters 16, 17, and 21, which in the Old Testament is a straightforward narrative, and he turns it into an allegory to illustrate his point. And as strange as it may first appear that Paul's mode of interpreting the Old Testament scriptures should not conform to our laws of logic or language, it would be far stranger if it had not conformed with the natural modes of thought and association in his own day. And there are two types of allegory. One is biblical and one is unbiblical. There was a Palestinian allegory, which was a method of interpretation in which Old Testament narratives were seen as being actual historical accounts with significance on the historical level and as having a God-intended typological or symbolic meaning as well. In contrast, the Alexandrian allegory would look for deeper meanings but often at the expense of the historicity of the account. An example would be Origen, who came up with all kinds of fanciful interpretations of the Old Testament narratives without feeling the need to comment on the historical significance of the account. In his mind, the entire story was a parable. So Paul's familiarity with this style of exposition gave him a real advantage as he deals with the Jews who were trying to change the gospel message. And because Paul used allegory does not mean he doubts the historical accuracy of the account. In the original Greek, the word illustration, in the version that I used, is the word allegory. So we can't doubt that that is what Paul intended in this passage of Scripture. So we need to ask the questions, what are the possible reasons for Paul using allegory as a response or rebuttal to the message of the Judaizers? There's several. It could be that the Judaizers used the same type of argument and Paul was trying to turn it to his advantage by using the same methodology. They may have used the allegory from Moses' writings to push their Jewish covenant theology. So Paul uses a father of the Jewish faith, Abraham. Maybe because of Genesis 21, 9-10, which is quoted in verse 30, 
which says, drive out the slave. In Paul's argument that we'll unpack later, we'll see that the slaves would be the Judaizers who are giving the false message. And Paul is really saying, drive out the false teachers from your midst. Because of the exclusivism of the Jewish false teachers and their contempt for the Gentiles, Paul's example, in Paul's example, Gentiles are accepted and the racially confident ones are rejected by God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 8, 11 to 12. I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or it could be to support his position of sonship and heirship that Paul has been emphasizing in chapters 3 and 4. This really was the heart of his argument, our adoption into the family of God by faith through Christ alone, not along any biological bloodlines, not along any lines of work. Of the reasons presented, this is the most likely reason that Paul used allegory. And in this passage, Paul presents his, presents his final and, from his view, climactic argument in his case against the Judaizers. The Judaizers thought God's work with Gentiles was incomplete if it didn't have both trust in Jesus and a commitment to the Mosaic Law. Paul's position all along has been that only trust in Jesus is necessary. The time of Moses is past. But Paul argues in this last section that if one reads Scripture allegorically, then one will see that the stories of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, along with the stories of Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael, teaches the point Paul has been making all along. God's way is through the promise and not through the flesh. This final argument about the law complements the previous three arguments Paul presented in Galatians 3, 6 to 14, 315 to 25, and 326 to 420. Paul's argument is anchored in the patriarch that he thinks is paramount, and that is Abraham. So in verse 21, Paul starts by asking the questions to those who want to be under law if they really understand what the law says. Have you ever found yourself in the same situation saying yes without realizing what you're actually saying yes to? There's one caveat. Husbands and wives can't use that when you think about your marriage. That's just an example. What is happening here is that legalism had crept into the gospel message through the teaching of Judaizers. We need to ask ourselves, are we guilty of doing the same thing at times? Do we get legalistic when dealing with those outside or even inside the faith? This can get tricky when dealing across denominational lines. Two examples, <clears throat> when I was doing seminary for my MDiv, uh, and I did it online through Liberty, which is a Baptist university, we were in systematic theology, and we were in the discussion of baptism. And one of my classmates posted in there that if you're not an adult and if you're not completely immersed, just like what Stott said earlier, it doesn't count. You have to be baptized that way, or it's meaningless. And for those that know me, I tend to be somewhat sarcastic from time to time. And I responded, well, there's two examples. One, and for those who have ever read the Perspectives book on mission work, 
Uh, there's one example in there about an American missionary who was in Africa, and he was in a very arid region and traveling with some indigenous priests, pastors, and some people came to Christ. They had no river. They had no lake. So they took the bottled water that they were using to drink in the back of their Jeep, and they baptized by pouring it over the top of their head. But the second more extreme example that I uh, wrote to him is that I encouraged him to become a missionary to the Eskimos north of the Arctic Circle. And when they came to Christ to try baptism by immersion in the waters there, which would probably kill them. Um, a few of my classmates thought that was pretty humorous. The guy that I responded to didn't respond back to me. I don't know. But, uh, but it's true. Yeah. The second example is when Kyung and I were in Korea a long time ago. Um, the church we attended was, I would say, spirit-filled, charismatic-type church, and I was invited to go to a men's Bible study. So I showed up a little bit early, and I was talking to some of the, the guys there, and one of them asked me if I prayed in tongues. I'm not a cessationist. I believe that is still a gift that is alive and well today. However, I do not have it. So I answered, no. And his response to me was, oh. You know, at that point, I was like, am I a second-class Christian because I can't pray in tongues? I just, I didn't leave the Bible study. I continued to go to it. But it, to this day, and it's been more than two decades, I still remember that. He had a lasting impression on me just by his attitude, like he was better than I was because he could pray in tongues. We should never compromise the essential truths of the gospel, but we need to be careful that we don't get legalistic over matters that aren't essential doctrinal truths or we can turn people away. And wasn't this one of Jesus' issues with the Pharisees, that they were so legalistic that they were actually wearing down the people. It is important to realize that the people Paul is addressing have not completely surrendered to the heresy that's being taught to them. Otherwise, Paul would not have used the term want to be under the law. They were obviously being swayed by the gospel. I'm sorry, being swayed by the false teaching, but they not yet rejected the gospel. And the word law here in the first part <clears throat> is really a play on words because Paul's using it in two senses. Under the law is referring to the law of Moses, given at Mount Sinai, as well as the regulations that go along with it. However, don't you hear the law is referring to the Old Testament scripture, especially to, Abra to the story of Abraham and his two sons. In Galatians, as well as Romans, Paul calls the law holy, righteous, and good, because it was given by a holy, righteous, and perfectly good God. The problem was not the law, and this has been mentioned several times in sermons as we've gone through this. The problem was a sinful nature and us not being able to keep the requirements of the law. The law of Moses properly understood points beyond itself both to the past in the Abrahamic covenant as well as to the future in its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. To properly hear the law required more than traditional rabbinical exegesis as seen through the lenses of the Judaizers' theology. Paul now offers his interpretation of the Hagar Sarah story. Verses 22 to 23, the two sons. But Paul and Jews differed on who they represented. 
Abraham's story of Isaac and Ishmael with a well-worn text in rabbinical exegesis. The Judaizers view was that the descendants of Isaac were the Jews and the descendants of Ishmael were the Gentiles. At Mount Sinai, the Jews had received the enlightenment of the law while the Gentiles remained in the darkness of sin. This caused them to be alienated from the promises of God and separate from the nation of Israel. The fiscal seed of Abraham was understood in two lines or branches, legitimate children through Isaac and illegitimate children through Ishmael. The Judaizers' incorrect exegesis fits in perfectly with the false message they were speaking to the, Gentile, or to the Galatians. The Gentile believers wanted to be part of the new Christian community. The church headquartered at Jerusalem, they must be circumcised and they must submit to the law. If they did not submit to circumcision, then they must be cast out of the church and they couldn't inherit the promises of Abraham. And this argument obviously carries significant weight with the new believers as they considered submitting to the law in addition to their faith in Christ. They began to have doubts as to whether faith was enough. Have you ever had those doubts? Sometimes you hear or read or maybe know about a person who their conversion experience was significant and emotional. But what if your conversion experience is not like that? Mine wasn't. And at times, I've questioned it. But I know that that's the enemy whispering lies in my ear, that all is needed is faith in Christ and obedience to him. There are two reasons for Paul retelling the story of Abraham and his two sons. The story of Abraham and his two sons actually undermines the position of the Judaizers and not support it. But it does give support to Paul's position of justification by faith alone. And what do the two sons represent? In general terms, they represent the two physical lines of descendants that come from Abraham. And there was tension between the two sons, just as there was tension between the false message and the preaching of Paul. Ishmael was born before Isaac. And although customs in those days allowed Sarah to ask Hagar to bear a son to be the heir, Ishmael was born through the flesh. It was man's timing. They didn't trust the promise of God that they would have a child between the two of them. There were 12 sons who were born to Ishmael who became the ancestors of the Arab tribes. And in time, the descendants of Ishmael became identified with Gentiles in general. Ishmael was born to a slave woman. He represents the law and thus being in bondage. Paul is saying that the Jews, being enslaved to the law and human effort, were really the descendants of Ishmael and therefore unbelievers. I wonder how that conversation took place just among the Jews. I'd like to have been a fly on the wall for that. Then we have Isaac, who was born through the promise in God's timing and trusting in God. The sons of Isaac were regarded as holy seed, a unique possession of God, and cherished above all the nations of the earth. To the Jews alone belong the law of Moses, the message of the prophets, and the promise of the Messiah. Psalm 147, 19-20. He declares his word to Jacob his statutes and judgments to Israel. 
He has not done this for any nation. They do not know his judgments. Hallelujah. Isaac was born to a free woman and represents grace. Paul is saying that the church, made up of believers who are both Jew and Gentile, were the true descendants of Sarah because it was based on the promise. Verses 24 to 28, Paul talks about the two women, the two covenants. And there was conflict between Isaac, Sarah, and Ishmael, Hagar. There is conflict between grace and legalism. The two women represent the two covenants. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 16, Paul compares and contrasts the glory of the new covenant to the fading splendor of the old Mosaic covenant. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, a fading glory, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was fading away was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were closed. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Even to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Hagar, there, there are numerous things that are represented in the example of Hagar. The children of Hagar are slaves. The principal difference between Ishmael and Isaac is the absence of the word of God in the birth of Ishmael. It was at the instruction of Sarah that Ishmael was conceived, who was a source of contention and suffering for the rest of his life. The law produces slaves. It produces persecutors. Hagar's attitude to a childless Sarah in Genesis 16.4, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she realized she was pregnant, she treated her mistress with contempt. And the Ishmael mocking Sarah and her child in Genesis 21.9. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. Earthly Jerusalem that is in slavery and the Judaizers' false message are all represented in Hagar. In the Old Covenant... Those that sought liberation through the Mosaic Covenant were doomed to disappointment. The children of Hagar could never become the children of Sarah by observing the law. And this also applied to Jewish Christians, such as the Judaizers and the Gentile followers, as well as unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah. But then there were things that were represented in Sarah. Her children were free. They were born of the promise. In grace brings forth free children. They were persecuted. The New Testament saints were also children of promise, just like Isaac. Just as Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael, early Christians were subject to persecution from the legalists, among others. 
And in verse 30, Paul is calling on the Galatians to drive out the legalists. Drive out the slave and her son. Their work does not have the authority or blessing of God and must come to an end. The Galatians must use their freedom to act and expel the Judaizers. And finally, there's a heavenly Jerusalem in freedom. The heavenly city of God where all departed believers go. Hebrew 11.10 For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And also in Hebrews 12.22 Instead you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering. There was Paul's message, which was a true message represented through Sarah. And the new covenant, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Legalism has no part in the new covenant. Verses 29 to 31 talks about persecution. The Judaizers were persecuting the Galatians as well as Paul. The lost of this world will persecute Christians. We read about it all the time. We probably read about it more often today than we did five or ten years ago. Some of us have friends or family who have been persecuted. Some of us have experienced persecution directly. Some in this congregation have experienced extreme persecution. All of us should expect to face persecution at some point in our walk. Jesus said in John 15, 18-21, If the world hates you, Understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't use the term may. He says will be persecuted. But the good news, there are a couple ways to avoid persecution. We can conform to the norms of this world. However, we shouldn't be doing that. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Or we could preach the gospel of toleration, which is a false gospel. Think of the church of Theotira in Revelations 2, 19-23. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Your last works are greater than the first. So far, it's a good message. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her practices. I will kill her children with the plague. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts. And I will go to each of you according to your works. Those who teach and spread false teachings will be judged. Those who sit in the congregation of a church should never blindly take the preacher's word without checking it themselves. Never, ever, ever. 
whatever I say or Tim, whoever's presenting the word, you should check it yourself. Sometimes we misspeak and it happens. And I know that I've done that. However, misspeaking is not the same as speaking a false message. False teaching should always be challenged. And if necessary, the person giving the false teaching should be removed from their position. So we can't avoid persecution by compromising our walk and talk. But scripture tells us there are consequences for doing this. The gospel of toleration is attractive because it's easier, makes the lives of Christians less offensive, it doesn't go against the grain of present-day society and culture. However, we should never cheapen the gospel by being swayed by the norms of the world, resulting in a false gospel being preached. At the same time, our speaking truth should be done in love and not abrasive or hate-filled speech. Luther's comment on this passage is succinct and to the point. As soon as the word of God appears, the devil becomes angry. And in his anger, he employs every power and wile to persecute it and wipe it out completely. Therefore, it cannot be otherwise than that he should stir up endless sects and offenses, persecution and slaughter, for he is a father of lies and a murderer. He plants his lies in the world through false teachers, and he murders men through tyrants. If someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim that he is a Christian. And verse 30 provides a culmination action point that Paul is telling the Galatians and it has been setting up since verse 21. It is likely that Paul is using the exact same message that was used against him by the Judaizers. Don't listen to him, them, and banish him, them, from your midst. This raises the issue of tolerable diversity within the Christian church. From his Corinthian letters, it is clear that Paul was willing to tolerate different opinions and irregularities to preserve the unity of the church. However, the false teachings of the Judaizers went beyond that. They were teaching a false gospel. The church can't compromise on false teaching within the church ever. F.F. F. Bruce states, Whatever moral or legal problems may have been raised by Sarah's demand in its historical setting, in Paul's application, it becomes a statement of a basic gospel truth. Legal bondage and gospel freedom cannot coexist. Strange as all this may seem to us, it contains one great truth from two possible paths. Those who make the law the principle of their lives are in the position of slaves, whereas those who make grace the principle of their lives are free. At this time, we have a guest Galatian that I'd like to call to the front. Aaron, go ahead, come on down. And I need two volunteers, like elementary school would be really good. So if you have, go down here, down here. I need two children. It'll be fun. Trust me. No takers? It's not, you don't have to speak or anything. You get to play with string. There, there are some in here. Okay, so anybody else who would like to participate? We don't get out of here until we do this, so two people need to come down. Go ahead. Go ahead.
Just put your arms down. It's easy. You may want to move this way. Okay. So as I'm talking, you can wrap him up. You can go from his ankles. Hold on. Wait. Let me finish the direction. You go from his ankles to his shoulders. Do not go to his neck because at that point, it goes from an example of bondage and freedom to I might have to do a raise the dead. And I think, don't think, I don't think I'm quite ready for that, although it would probably raise attendance on Sunday morning. So go ahead. Opposite ways, just, just wrap him up. You can do it tight. If his fingers turn blue, let me know. So we have the two Judaizers here who are wrapping up our young Galatian with the bondage of the law. Under the law, there is no freedom. The Galatians, and Aaron the young Galatian, had walked up here in freedom. And now the Judaizers showed up. And they are, as an adult male, to the first requirement of, of circumcision, that's worth at least 30 revolutions of the string, I think. And then all the little requirements of the law. This goes back to the very beginning. Why would you want to go under the law? Would it work better with young kids? I don't know. We have freedom through faith in Jesus. Keep going. John eight thirty one through thirty six. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? And Jesus responded, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the Son sets you free, you will really be free. Aaron, you feeling very free right now? You are feeling free? No, you're not feeling free. Okay. I think we can probably stop with the yarn. Thank you, Judaizers. Okay, so now I need a volunteer. Patrick! This was arranged ahead of time. Patrick is going to speak the message of Paul to, these, to this Judaizer who was being swayed. So real quick, because I know Imran is looking very carefully before I hand you sharp-pointed objects. You don't wear glasses? Do you have contacts? You're good. When's the last, when's the last time you had an eye checkup? Ten years? Quick, how many fingers? Eight? Imran, you good or no? Yeah, he's good. Okay. Is this a new shirt? Okay, it's now okay. So you can go ahead and release the Galatian from the bondage of the false message that the Judaizers were presenting. Wow, that was pretty quick. And you just leave it on the ground. Thank you, thank you. If there is one theme running throughout Galatians, it's a theme of freedom. But what is Paul's idea regarding freedom? There are the theological dimensions of freedom. Being free is a relationship with God. In the presence of God, we are free from the curse of the law. Being free is a result of the death of Jesus. We were captive to sin and law, but Christ's death redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being free is life in the Spirit of God. 
2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. These three ideas are brought together in Romans 8.2. Because a Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's a human dimensions of freedom. Freedom is something Christians know about, enjoy, and experience, and that the Judaizers can't know until they give up the law. Being liberated to be what God wants us to be and to do what God wants us to do. There are social implications. Those who are set free live out the freedom by loving others and developing relationships with others that are marked by kindness and goodness. In the end, what does this mean for us? Paul's message is very clear. Run from the law. Turn from bondage and embrace freedom. And whatever the law may look like in your life, whatever little legalisms you have, cut it off of you. Run from it. And run with wild abandon to the one who stands with outstretched arms, ready to give you complete freedom from all your burdens. Jesus. Let us pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.